Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. For some Southern and Southeastern tribes, alligators have an important cultural status. The imposing reptile is a source of food, sure, but it's also the source of traditional stories that teach and guide tribal members through the generations. And at least one tribe's connection with alligators developed into a more modern tradition. We'll explore the relationship between alligators and Southern tribes right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A bill to name a section of highway on the Blackfeet Reservation after the late Chief Earl Old Person is making its way through the Montana legislature. Aaron Bolton has more. Chief Old Person was not just the hereditary chief and longtime political leader of the Blackfeet Nation. He was a well-known figure that worked on national pieces of legislation like the American Indian Religious Freedom Act and led the National Congress of American Indians throughout his lifetime. Now, legislation would designate a portion of U.S. Highway 89 in Chief Old Person's honor. The bill has been met with some opposition from Republican lawmakers who say there are better ways to honor the Blackfeet leader, but the bill passed the state Senate with bipartisan support. The legislation is now on its way over to the House for consideration. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. For now, the reasons for a polar bear attack in Alaska this week remains a mystery. Alaska state troopers say a polar bear killed a woman and her child in Wales in a Nupiat village about 100 miles northwest of Nome. As the community grieves, scientists and other local experts who help to manage wildlife in the region have begun the difficult process of trying to find out more about what happened. Jeff York, the senior conservation director at Polar Bears International, talked with Alaska Public Media about the attack. He says investigators need to tread lightly to balance the need for information with respect for the community. It's difficult to do in these times as people are are traumatized, you know, by what happened, uh, but it's also critically important that we get as much information from these events as possible so we can, you know, share lessons learned and share information with other communities going forward. The, the end goal is to, you know, try to keep people safe. Polar bear attacks are extremely rare in Alaska. The last one took place in 1990. Since then, the impacts of shrinking sea ice on marine life due to a warming climate have escalated. But York says there's plenty of sea ice in the region right now, enough for the bears to hunt for marine mammals, which provide them with the high-energy diet necessary for their survival. York cautions against jumping to conclusions about whether sea ice played a role in the attack. Historically, so even going back beyond written records, polar bears have attacked and killed people, potentially for food, regardless of sea ice conditions. So linking one event to this larger environmental phenomenon that's ongoing today is always a bit risky. That being said, we know that the Chukchi Sea has experienced dramatic changes in sea ice. Although sea ice is in place right now, York says it's hard to know what's happening in the habitat below, which might impact the food supply. He also says scientists do not have enough information about the circumstances surrounding the attack and the condition of the bear. They'll look at the age of the bear, the health of the bear, if they can, uh, the sex of the bear, 
and then they'll talk to local community members about events leading up to and during the event itself and just try to get as much information as possible. State troopers say 24-year-old Summer Myomic and her one-year-old son were on a walk between the school and the local clinic when the polar bear struck. A community member shot and killed the bear. Interior Secretary Deb Holland is in Arizona to gather testimony about Indian boarding school experiences. Holland is leading a national investigation into the impacts on tribal communities from federal Indian boarding school policy. A gathering is scheduled for Friday in Phoenix and Sunday on the Navajo Nation. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support from AmeriCorps VISTA, whose members serve to alleviate poverty while earning money for college and gaining professional skills. Rewarding service opportunities can be found at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Alligators are among the world's oldest species of animals. In the United States, they are mostly limited to the Gulf Coast states and inhabit the swamps and rivers there. Tribes that share the land and water with them developed stories and traditions about alligators, and the reptiles remain a traditional source of food. They faced extinction in the 1960s because of overhunting and habitat loss. Since then, measures to protect them have produced a promising rebound in populations, enough that there are regular hunting seasons in many states. Here are a few facts about alligators. Male alligators can get up to about 15 feet in length, although there have been some even longer. They can weigh more than 1,000 pounds and can run on land up to 35 miles per hour. Alligators are also different from crocodiles in both appearance and size. Today, we'll discuss the cultural importance of alligators with two tribes, but we also want to hear from you. Does your community have any stories about alligators? Have you ever seen an alligator in the wild? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us from Hollywood, Florida is Everett Osceola. He is cultural ambassador and a member of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Everett, welcome to Native America Calling. Uh, Hello. Hello, Everett. Uh, let's get started here. Alligators, they're limited to certain parts of the country, uh, so I think folks elsewhere might not have the same connections as your own people. Can you explain the significance of alligators to the Seminole Tribe of Florida? Uh, yes. Um, first off, um, third third generation of alligator wrestling. Uh, I learned from my uncle, who in turn learned from his father. Um, my uncle was Paul Bowers, and 
from what I was told, everything I was taught from him and also a few other uh, alligator wrestling teachers that I've had over the years, um, the alligator, uh, from the story, I'll, I'll kind of keep a, a long story, <laughs> a long story long, pretty much. Um, <laughs> But a long story short, uh, when we were pushed way into the Everglades, it was very hard for us to get out of the um, the 10,000 Islands and try to, you know, kind of go away from the camps to go to go and hunt for food and come back without exposing, you know, where we were at, our families, our resources. Uh, so we would periodically um, make uh, trading exchanges or goods with outside people, but it was very scarce. So when we were deep in the Everglades, we would use what was available to us, and at that time was the alligator. Uh, so they would use the alligator for everything. We would use uh, the tail for meat, for food source. We would use the back of the alligator hide for uh, covering our, our food to protect it from the weather environment and also from insects. Uh, we also used the back of the alligator for as a as a way of protection or armor, I guess, if you want to say that, during our Seminole Wars. And then we also used to use the uh, the bottom of the jaw of the alligator as a war club during those times. So we used to use every part of the alligator as a way of survival, as survival during that time. And then we used, some of, um, we used it in some of our ceremonies. Uh, we believe the alligator was a way of a good source of medicine. Uh, and then later on uh, in the 1900s, it was a good source of revenue. Uh, during the early 1900s, the biggest commodity that we traded with uh, the outside, uh, I guess you would say outside trading or general stores such as Stranahan, Chugaluski, and the Browns General Store, which was way, way pretty much around the Everglades area. Uh, we would trade uh, alligator high, but the biggest thing was the alligator eggs. And the alligator eggs were used for medicinal purposes, from what I was told, for by Seminoles and by natives and non-natives. Uh, but also, I heard stories which I think are kind of urban legends, uh, where we would sell, they would sell the alligator eggs as a way of, you know, giving to the tourists. You know, you could have your own alligator egg. Uh, some people would have the alligator, uh, the egg would hatch, the alligator would, you know, come, but then it would become too big. They would flush them down the toilet. And so the urban legend is that's why maybe there's alligators in the sewers in New York and everything like that. <laughs> I remember hearing that story long ago, and, and then you would hear stories, again, maybe urban legends, that the alligators would crawl up into toilet bowls and, like, enter people's houses and stuff like that. Did you hear that one? Yes, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stories that came from when we used to sell or trade alligator eggs with outside sources. But, yeah, uh, stories of that nature. Well... Interesting, interesting history there, Everett. And uh, so let's talk more about, about the history of, of wrestling alligators. You said earlier you were a third-generation alligator wrestling. When did that start amongst the Seminole people? Uh, again, when we were pushed way back into the Everglades, uh, we used uh, uh, the alligator, as I was saying before, uh, as food source, uh, you know, weaponry. Uh, but in the 1900s, uh, when they were draining the Tamiami Trail, and uh, it's called 75 now, but it's uh, loosely, uh, everybody kind of calls it Alligator Alley. Uh, but even then, when they were draining the Everglades to make those those roadways to make it from the east side of Florida to the west side to the to the Gulf Coast, um, a lot of, you know, you saw a lot of construction workers, and then finally when it was opening, 
Uh, people are using that as a way of getting, as means of uh, getting from point A to point B. Uh, so then during that time in the early 1900s, uh, we were coming out of, I wouldn't say fully coming out of hiding. Uh, we were just coming out to trade with uh, such as Stranahan House and, and Brown's General Store, as I was saying before. But when they were coming out, they would also, from what I was told, the alligators were, you know, on the way back, they'll pick up an alligator. It's almost, <laughs> I make it seem like they, they stopped at the grocery store, but if they saw an alligator on the side, they would pick up the alligator. Um, they would somewhat, in a, in a way, look like they're wrestling, but they were just trying to capture the alligator. Uh, and then they will put it on a pole and then they will take it back with them. They'll put it on the dugout canoe and then they'll go off. A lot of people saw this and they thought it was a show. So then they would throw money towards them. So what would take almost, um, you know, because it was, it was hard to travel from the, because there's 10,000 islands out in the Everglades, which a lot of people don't know. Um, so they would come out from the Everglades, but what took them, it was a lot of, a lot of time and energy to leave those islands. So it took them a, a quite a bit of time, almost about a week, a week and a half to go trade and, and come back. But when they noticed when they were coming back, they were throwing money and everything. So what took them a long time to like a two-week two trip would actually take them, you know, maybe a couple of days because the money is being thrown. And that's when certain things where alligator wrestling was coming about. Then you had the... I'm sorry, I, I every, them, I'm sorry, just real quickly. And about what years are we talking here? I would say between an estimate of 1900s to about the 1920s. Okay, thank uh, you. Please, please continue. Okay, so then, and the, like between the 1900s and the 1920s, because the first established reservation is the Hollywood Reservation, which I reside on. That was established in 1911. Um, so I, be, I believe between 1900 and 1920 is when we were still having, uh, you know, things of that nature of uh, still going out into the woods and getting our food and, you know, the alligator, the, the story I was just telling. Mm -hmm. um, but then, then the, I'm sorry, in the 1920s, uh, I call them, I guess, the eco-tourisms or tourist traps. I hate saying tourist traps, but the eco-tourism venues during that time, you had Musa Isle, which was the oldest. Uh, there was one that was ran by a Seminole uh, named Willie Willie. He started his own eco-tourism. And then you had Tropical Hobbyland, Jungle Queen. So you had all of these um, venues opening up and they would have shows. They would have... Um, Basically, uh, the Jungle Queen had a, a a boat that went down the uh, the rivers uh, of New River of Fort Lauderdale, New River of Miami. Um, but then they would have, you know, like a dinner and a show. But usually the show was an alligator wrestling show. Uh, so from what I was told, uh, a person named Harry Coppinger from Louisiana uh, got wind of this. And he actually helped the Seminole people turned the shows into a showman show, uh, a showmanship show. And then that's when you had bulldogging. Uh, we call it the Florida smile. And then we started incorporating other moves where we would turn the alligator over and we would have uh, synchronized. It was almost kind of like synchronized alligator wrestling shows where you had two people doing the same moves at the same time. So it was a big draw in uh, not only for the Seminole people, but the people that were running the ecotourism or tourist traps, if you will. And so that brought a lot of revenue and prosperity to the Seminole people back then. Um, and then you also had, you know, they would come in and they would um, see like, uh, they would see the Seminole people sewing, doing the patchwork and also wood carving. But the biggest drawing was the alligator wrestling show. 
I'll bet. Yeah, it sounds like a, a really, really exciting time in, in your tribal history there. Now, Everett, when did you first start wrestling alligators yourself? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I've always handled alligators. Uh, my my aunt uh, uh, used to run a ecotourism off of 441 called Native Village. And then right down the street was Oakley Village, which was Oakley, Oakley Village was established in 1962, and then Native Village came about around 19, I would say the late 1970s. And my aunt ran one of them, and my uncle, who was doing the alligator wrestling shows, he would travel, he would go to different shows. Uh, they, we have a lot of uh, festivals down here, in, uh, not only in South Florida, but also in Tampa. Uh, so he would go to those different festivals, and they would do the alligator wrestling shows. So I would help him... Um, kind of bring the alligators and put them in the truck and but I never wrestled them because my mom who who's no longer with us but my mom at the time uh didn't want me to wrestle alligators um so then I was basically just uh handling them and putting them in the truck if I did want to do a show my uncle was terrified of my mom so he told me no I don't want to hear it from your mom so just you know <laughs> I, I want you to keep your fingers and also, one of my uncles <laughs> lost his fingers. Uh, Paul Bowers, who was who was also a, a veteran, but he was also honored at the uh, 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 National Indian Ro- uh, Rodeo Association. Uh, but also, they would tell me that uh, you know just handle the alligators. So it wasn't until I would say my late twenties I started doing alligator wrestling shows. Okay. Um, Everett, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break here, but uh, we definitely want to learn more about your shows, and everything else. So, folks, stay with us. We'll be right back. Recognizing deep fakes is just one problem involving the increasing sophistication of artificial intelligence. Native artists worry their work will fuel AI copies without adequate copyright protections. And there's concerns AI will help normalize appropriation and stereotypes. We'll consider the rapidly developing issues around AI on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with two different tribes about the cultural importance of alligators. Do you have any questions about alligators that you were always curious about? Have you ever encountered one? If you'd like to join us, you can do so by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. On the line in Hollywood, Florida is Everett Osceola. Everett, uh, you were talking to us uh, earlier before break. You grew up around alligators. You started wrestling in the late 20s, when you were in your late 20s, excuse me. And I think the question on everybody's mind is, how dangerous is it? Have you ever been bit or seriously injured by an alligator? Uh, no, I haven't been seriously bit. I've had close calls uh, where one almost uh, uh, got a hold of my arm. I uh, had another one where um, uh, pretty much uh, it, it almost grabbed a hold of, I, I, I wouldn't say um, part of my face, but uh, my face was near. It almost got a part, part of my cheek. Uh, 
um, it, things of that nature. But you had to be really quick because one of the rules that they always say is like um, they pretty much it's not uh, if you're going to get bit, it's when you're going to get bit. So it's always you always have to take proper precautions. So uh, I've had close calls, but as long as you have respect for the animal and you're not showboating and show offering, because we have a, a an extensive cultural um, I guess you would say protocol before we even start wrestling. Uh, uh, I guess you would say a ceremony, as as if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that you remark that it's important to have respect for the alligator. And I'm curious, no, do alligators have personalities? Are there some that you can connect with better than others when you're doing your shows? Yes. Uh, one of my favorite alligators that I, I, I first started training with, we named him Austin. Uh, he was named after one of my late cousins, uh, Austin Billy. Uh, but that was his alligator, and the reason why we called him Austin because that was the one that that bit Austin. Um, <laughs> but after um, when I started getting into alligator wrestling, they they said, yeah, he would be the best one to train with because I was just beginning to learn. Uh, the reason why he we were the reason why we were beginning to train him, train Austin with me, is because he was very uh acclimated with learning how to uh to move like i would uh they would take the they would first train you with the tape on they would train you for probably about a day maybe half a day if you start getting the moves correctly uh they would take the tape off uh a lot of people get kind of scared but austin uh for some reason he just didn't he didn't bite you he knew when he was about to be fed um and then we had a big enclosure uh oakley village which was at the hard rock property at the time um so we had an enclosure uh but it was kind of like it was a a metal gate so they opened the metal gate and the thing is you drag the alligator out into the middle of the um in front of the audience and then you do the show austin for some reason he had his own personality he knew he he knew when to get up so all you had to do was just tell him to come out he would come out of the enclosure he'll come and he would lay right perfectly in the middle of the arena and then when you were done, you would tell Austin you're done or to go back into the enclosure, and he would get up, and he would just walk back into the enclosure. No no, uh, no problems with him at all. And so he knew when he was being fed. He knew when he wasn't going to get bit. And then uh, other ones you had, uh, we had one called uh, Lunge, and the reason why we called him Lunge because he's a 14-foot gator, but the way he moved was almost uh, almost, uh, almost like a four-foot a four or a five-footer gator, which – which they're really agile, um, and the thing about him, he was such he was such a pain. He was like uh, when we would clean out his uh, his gator pits, uh, we would put every all the stuff at the bottom, such as all the uh, all the the trash and everything that's thrown in the pit, whatever. So we would put it at the bottom, clean the pits, and he knew when you were about because that was the last bit because you had to scoop everything up and put it in a garbage bag. He knew when that was going to happen. He would slide underneath the pit or he would slide into the pit and go on top of that trash. So that way you wouldn't have to get it. And he would just mess with you all the time. He just made it so difficult. <laughs> Jeez, so he was, he, was, he was a butthole. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. Let's go to the phones. We've got Bob listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley. Bob, I understand you have a story about seeing a big gator once. Yeah, back in the back in the day, I went to Seminole Reservation. I passed one. Well, here's a big one. Yeah, big gator. Yeah, like the guy was mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Any idea? How, down. how many feet? I totally, I, I totally his head down. I had to hold his head down. Then I grabbed it and I wrestled him down. He kept turning, tossing, turning. 
Then pretty soon I just grabbed him, I held him down, and I tied a rope on him. Then I took him down. And that was it. I took him to a big gator. He's a big gator, yeah. Boy, that's big a heck of a story there, Bob. Heck of a story. Glad you're, glad you're okay, and uh, you did okay on that one. Wow. That was Bob in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Anybody else with a story about an encounter with an alligator? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Let's introduce our next guest on the show now. Joining us from Huma, Louisiana, is Principal Chief Laura Ann Shashon of the United Huma Nation. Principal Chief, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, fascinated with the, um, Mr. Alfiola's uh, story. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Principal Chief, please tell us more uh, about the cultural significance of alligators to your people. I'm going to, well, RJ is on the line, so him and I, we, we discussed it, and, he, and I'll let him do that part um, with the okay. history of it. I know we have a lot of songs, um, and, you know, with the alligators, and we, and, I, and I heard the, the song that you was playing prior to that, and it states uh, um, in our language as well, so I thought that was uh, very unique. Um, but yeah, the alligators. Uh, I mean, I have alligators in my front yard. Uh, I feed the alligators. Um, you know, we have. You know, it's it's very important to us. And like uh, Mr. Osceola was saying about personality, uh, definitely have personality. Uh, those alligators. Um, but yeah, you know, and I, I do a lot of cooking. I used to clean alligator. I used to hunt alligator. I don't do that any longer. You know. Um, but I still make jewelry with alligator and cook it. Well, tell so us more about uh, about the jewelry that you make, Principal Chief. Um, the the back of the alligator, uh, the top part. What we do is actually um, boil it out and make flowers with it, like the magnolia flowers since Louisiana. Um, you know, they're state flowers. Uh, magnolia so I would make I use the magnolia the back of it to make like a magnolia flower and it looks like it and I take the alligator garfish scales and dye it with food color green and and then I put some shells in it to the middle mm. well it sounds yeah. delicious uh, or not delicious excuse me it just sounds like a, a really really beautiful piece and um I also want to learn a little bit more about the food that you cook. But before we do that, let's go ahead and, and introduce uh, R.J. Molnare, as you suggest. So joining us is R.J. Molnare. He's an alligator hunter, an arm wrestling champion, and he stars on the History Channel reality series Swamp People. Some people might also know him as the Swamp Indian. He's a member of the United Huma Nation. R.J., thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, RJ, uh, earlier I asked Principal Chief uh, about the cultural significance of alligators to the to the Huma people. Can you elaborate? Well, um, my family, where we live at back here, we go back five generations. And um, in the 40s, my mom would go with her uncle, and they would do alligator hunting, but they had to either have a mule with them to pull it back in and stuff like that. So... And the, I don't know if it was the late 40s or the early 40s, they had to stop messing with the alligators because they was, uh, you know, they, they was uh, getting scarce. So anyway, um, 
with my mom doing what she did when she was a young girl. Well, then in 1979, the alligator season reopened because they was overpopulated. But uh, but uh, anyway, when we started to fish alligators, I didn't know anything about an alligator. But thank God that we still had my mom, and she, we was out in a boat, and it was the first day of alligator season in 79, and I'm like, what is she doing? So, so, so she did what she had to do, and at around 17, 18 years old, I started fishing alligators myself, and it became, well, well like I said, it goes down from five generations, and it got to me now, so um, yes, uh, it's just something that's in your blood, and that's what we do. Um, and it's only it, our season over here only lasts 30 days, but uh, we go out and hunt the alligator, uh, and also we, uh, we we've got different ways of doing to get the alligator. But yes, my family goes way back on the alligators. Okay, now you hunt a variety of animals. How is hunting alligators different than other types of game? Again. I'm just curious, how is alligator hunting different than, than other types of animals? Perhaps, you know, like hunting. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say like the, the, the person who spoke earlier, uh-huh. you know, when you're fishing alligators or hunting alligators, you need to give that alligator all the respect because if you don't, he's going to take care of you. He's going to, uh, you know, so I've learned at the time that I've been hunting alligators, um, you got to do, uh, uh, like I said, you got to give an alligator respect. If you don't give it respect, it's going to tell it, it, you, you're going to, uh, like you were saying earlier, if you show boating and all kinds of stuff like that, you, uh, you're in for a big, you know, uh, an alligator could just tear you to pieces. So, uh, yeah. So when I'm out there doing what I'm doing, the alligator is probably the one that I, you got to keep a close eye on and, and uh, have respect for them, and that's one thing we do, because my son, uh, we had one. It was 12 feet four inches, and I don't know what happened, but we he, he Jay, Jay had shot him, and he didn't good get a good shot, I guess. He just stunned him. Anyway, um, he was out in the water. We could see him coming up and going down. And uh, Jay said, uh, I said, Jay, I said, you know what? I said, we got to get this alligator because it's going to go and we're going to lose him. He said, well, and then I said, if you want me to jump in, I'll go and get him. He said, no, Dad. He said, I shot him. I made a bad shot. I'm going to get him. But anyway, so Jay jumps in the water and the alligator's underwater and Jay Paul just disappeared. I'm like, oh, man. My boy then got ate by that alligator. Next thing you know, this guy comes up and he's got that alligator like he's wrestling. You know, he's he's wrestling an alligator. He's got it. He's an MA. He's an MMA fighter. And the way he came up with that alligator, he had it behind. He was behind the alligator. He had it like in a chokehold. And uh, the disc gator was some mad because he was just. In other words, he was just knocked out for a minute. I guess. Anyway. I'm trying to get Jay Paul back in the boat, but Jay Paul cannot let go of that alligator because he said, Daddy, this thing's going to get me. And I'm telling y'all, when he would snap his jaw, it sounded just like a grizzly. And so on three, I said, on three, Jay, I'm going to grab you, and I'm going to pull you in, and you got to do what you got to do. 
I tell you what, Jay Paul moved so fast to get in the boat and grabbed his rifle and did what he had to do with him. But if not, it was so close. I had to stay focused. The creator had me focused on him, and I was focusing down deep on Jay Paul. And uh, I tell you what, it was a really scary moment. He must have fought that alligator 40, 45 minutes in the water. So, but anyway, um, you know, we, uh, we we finally got him and we put him in the boat. Like I said, he was 12 feet, four inches. And uh, it was a, a, a crazy time, you know? <laughs> That's, <laughs> that story is just, wow. I mean, I can't even, <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like for you. And so, yeah, it definitely sounds different than like, uh, hunting, hunting deer in New Mexico or something like that, getting, getting in the water like that. And I mean, and sometimes that's how they kill, isn't it, RJ? It's, it's, they just, they drown people, right? They take them under and just keep them down there and keep spinning. Well, yeah, it, that's what we call the, um, uh, the death row. In other words, when he grabs you, he starts spinning. Well, guess what? If he, if he grabs your hand, your hand's going to go get pulled off or your whole arm. And then he might just pull you in. And then he's gonna just pull you to the bottom and just keep turning until he knows he, you know, you drown or whatever. And then he'll come back and get you later, you know. So uh, yeah, so um, it was really, really crazy to see my. Uh, and I and I told him after the alligator was in the boat, I said, my brother, I'm not worried. I said, my, I said, my boy, I ain't worried about you taking care of business after I'm gone with alligators because to me, what you just, uh, what I just witnessed. You gained my stripes. You got stripes from me. Uh, I have to give you because uh, it takes a good per, uh, it takes a good man to jump in the water with twelve foot alligator. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. Sure does. So, RJ, what kind of equipment do you do you use when you? I mean, you mentioned uh, rifles, I guess, but are you in a boat? Are you out there? How do you get around the, in the swamps and, and wherever else you need to go? And, and what all do you need? I got a, I got, I got, I got the equipment for it. I have a, um, we have a, a Panther airboat, and we also have a what, what we call the ice boat. The, the airboat goes out into the pond, and with the airboat, it, it, it's really, it's a, it's an alligator machine to me. Anyway, so if we have lines in the marsh, we will go check our lines out there, and then we have a boat. In the canal, standing by what we call our the, the one that keeps the ice to keep the gator, you know, fresh, and until we get it to where it needs to go. But yeah, that, I have um, I use a uh, a 27 foot Carolina skiff, and I also have a um, uh, an airboat. Uh, well, not one, but a couple of them, and that's how you know we get to them because there's spots that you can't get to especially back here when uh, the canals get all stopped up with uh, what we call water lilies. And uh, so the air bullet is really one of my good tools. And I tell you what, uh, I got to give it to my boy, Jay Paul. He's a good shot. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's something. He can shoot a gator. I tell you what, the shots y'all see, if y'all would ever see that he pulls on gators, it's unreal. He's a really good shot. Mm. Oh, it sounds like. And have you ever seen a gator? I mean, earlier in the show, you mentioned 35 miles an hour on land. Have you seen a gator move that fast? Well, um, I don't know how fast he was moving, but I don't know how fast I was moving. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, the, the, the way we do things down here, you know, and everybody's different. We hang lines. 
and the alligator gets on the line, and then the next morning you go do what you got to do with him. But he had a big boy. He was uh, he had my line, and he was on land. And uh, we thought he had went up there and just, you know, he, he was done. So I went up there on, in, in like, on a hard part in the marsh, like a little levee. I went over there, and by the time I got to him, I just kind of like, I wanted to just, you know, touch him a little bit with a uh, with a stick. And when I did that, he charged me. He grabbed my pants leg. I, it was like I had a, two pit bulls on my on my uh, on my pants. He was just going crazy with my. With, thank God it was my uh, my my jeans, not my leg, because he would, you know, he would probably tore it off or he would do some serious damage. So yeah. I don't know how fast he was going, but I know how RJ, fast we're going to have to take another break. I'm sorry. This is a great story, though. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join our conversation today about alligators. If you have a comment or a question for any of our guests, you can call 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We're joined uh, by two members of the United Huma Nation in Louisiana, Principal Chief Laura Ann Chasson and R.J. Molnair. And R.J., before we went to break, you were <laughs> telling a number of really, really interesting stories about your experiences uh, hunting alligator over the years. And I'm curious, uh, the show that you're on, Swamp People, how did that come about? Well, that's when the that's when our tribe, uh, you know, uh, someone from uh, the History Channel called up at the uh, United Home and Nation office. And they were looking for different cultures, uh, different areas for someone to fish alligators. So anyway, some, some, you know, a couple of guys from, uh, from history came down and they asked me if I wanted to fish alligators or, and be on TV. And I said, no. And, uh, he, he says, uh, oh, why not? I said, cause I have a partner. And he's like, uh, who's your partner? I said, my son, Jay Paul has been fishing with me since he's three years old. And he said, well, we, we, we can't use two of y'all. We need one. But anyway, I said, well, y'all need to go find somebody else because, uh, you know, my partner's with me at all times. So anyway, cut a long story short. He called this boss man. The boss man said, man, are you, are you serious? We got father and son fishing? There's nothing better that we left to have. So he said, uh, uh, so he called me back and told me that they wanted us to go. They'll take both of us. So anyway, it, um, um, it was it was pretty interesting, and um, a lot of people really, I mean, people just loved this show because a lot of people didn't know that how people from the body fish alligators, and so, yeah, so um, the History Channel asked me to play, I mean, uh, to, to, to fish alligators on that show, and we did, uh, and it was some good times, you know, uh, like, we, um, you know, I was saying we fish them, and but we don't need a hook to, uh, to catch an alligator. Um, we can use just a, 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 
like a six about a stick about the size of a sixty penny nail that we call it. Well, we call it another way, but I'll let y'all know how it's called. It's called the smart stick. You uh, weave some um, some bait on that little stick that you made. You tie your string right in the center of it, and when the gator gets it, it goes down into his um, his stomach. But when he goes to take off, it just the, the stick will turn, and it won't hurt the alligator. There's no hook on it or nothing like that, and uh, so uh, we use that to catch alligators. But yeah. Um, uh, it was a good thing that History Channel, and not only that, um, they was looking for some a, a Native American that still does alligator fishing, and I was they had about fifteen of us that they they tried, and Jay and I got the chance to go and uh, experience uh, alligator fishing with with the um, swamp people. RJ, and, that's uh, uh, that's great. Great to hear about your success, and I, I'm really happy to know that uh, you know you make sure that your son uh, is involved in all these projects as well. Uh, that really speaks volumes to to your family. Let's go ahead and go to the phones now. We have Jen listening online in East Texas. Jen, do you have a story about an alligator? Yes, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. I have a story and a question. I'm really loving all these stories, especially talking with the Homa Nation chief and and. Uh, and the uh, hunter. Or... Anyway, so my story is that I love going down to the Alabama Cachada every year uh, in June, first week in June, and camping out on Lake Tom Bigby. But I never knew that it was alligator mating season until this year. And whenever I got back home, their alligator had been out wandering around looking for a mate. And unfortunately, it got hit on the road nearby. But I have, my question is, I want to go back, but now I'm a little bit concerned knowing that the season, is there a deterrent I can put around my tent that would keep an alligator away? <clears throat> Jen, thanks for that question. RJ, uh, tips for traveling or camping out near alligators and staying safe? You know, like I said earlier, alligators, uh, if you if you lose your respect, you're going to get bit, okay? But if you don't bother this alligator, it's not going to mess with you. It's going to it's gonna try to get away from you. Now, the point that she brings up is when it's mating season and you go in it and, uh, and you go near that big male where he's got all his females at, he's going to fight you. He's going he's gonna to stand his ground. But as long as you don't go and try to fool with them during that time, well, uh, you have no, you know, they're not going to, they're not like a, 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 I guess, a polar bear or a grizzly. They're not going to hunt you down. They're going to leave you alone and they just. RJ, RJ, I'm sorry. When when is mating season? Because it sounds like we need to know. We didn't know very much specifically when that time is. uh, It's right when the, uh, I want to say right when springtime comes around. And um, so, yeah. around uh, I'm I'm going to say around September, just say September, or uh, or, or maybe a little later. But uh, yeah, okay. so well, that's it, fall it, though, yeah. RJ. That's that's fall, September. But yeah, that's what I'm, I'm sorry. That's what I said. Let me back up on that. Okay, because um, because Jin's might be down. We got we got to make sure we have the right month here. If Jin's going to be down right, there in a right, tent. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking about I'm I'm, I'm telling y'all about the alligator season instead of the uh, mating season. It's, okay. Um, it's, I'm, I'm gonna say like this. I don't know why they don't open the alligator season during the mating season because it's a. I think it's a month before September, 
in that area because I do uh I also do uh airboat tours and um uh right in this like I said in the springtime you see them all over the place and you know that's when it's um mating season. So that's would be uh that's not a good time to go around them if, because you go they're gonna you know that's where you're gonna get in trouble right there. But besides that, the alligator won't bother you. Even okay. e- e- any way that they, they have a mating season going on, they're not gonna just come up to you at your tent and say, "Hey, y'all need to go." You know, they're just gonna mind their own business. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Well, RJ, thanks for that information. Uh, Jin, good luck to you uh, camping uh, when you're out there. Uh, in that part of the country. Let's go back now to Principal Chief Laura Ann Shashan. And Principal Chief, listening to RJ and, and of course, the show Swamp People, um, what does that do there for the United Huma Nation? Do you think that show helps uh, provide a lot of exposure for your people? Uh, when it first came out, they had a lot of folks, that, uh, a lot of tribes that was interested in uh, having them as guests. Um, I remember they had a lady that was in the Omaha uh, tribe, and when I visited her, she she absolutely adored RJ. And so I brought her some uh, signed T-shirts. She, she was an elder, and Miss um, Miller, and she was an elder, and she had Vitas, and so she was uh, she would watch the show constantly, and she just loved them. So I I brought signed t-shirts to them guys but but i let me let me answer that question ed uh, alligator mating seasons in the summer and uh, but i also want i would like to also state that you know louisiana has the largest population of alligators and so the reason why alligator season was um, created was to control the population and the you know because in in the respect Growing up, we swam. I mean, I still swim in the bayou. If I'm going to swim, you know, it's in the bayou with the alligators. That's something that never, we just never even thought about it because we we just swam in the bayou, you know, with the alligators. It, it was no big deal. Uh, but, in you know, in the summer months, there we would have to watch because of the mating season. And But I remember that growing up. And, you know, just having the alligators in front of my house, uh, you know, because I have a bayou that runs directly in front of my house. I have a, my own personal bridge that crosses the bayou to get to my house. So, you know, having a lot of alligators like that, um, you know, it's just a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Principal Chief, earlier you shared uh, some of the jewelry that you make uh, from alligator. And now tell us about some of the food and, and the dishes that are prepared. A lot of... Uh, you know, a lot, of course, it's fried. Everybody, you know, fries alligator. But you also, you could grind, you take uh, alligator and you mix it with uh, alligator gar fish and shrimp. And you can grind that together and you, you make it, you know, you put eggs and the, the holy trinity in there. And you can fry that and make it a ball. And we call it a boulette. And that's really good. Uh, my signature dish is actually uh, called alligator saucepan, and I've done several uh, cooking shows. Um, I've actually did native people, um, native cooking uh, show, and it was uh, specifically with alligator, and it's a, and it's tomato gravy with you know onions, bell pepper, 
green onion, celery, you know, all, all kinds, of, and then some, some cayenne peppers, um, and it's and it's good. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and that's what I that's what I like to do. That's my signature dish is alligator sauce pecan. <laughs> well, <laughs> we've talked about alligator wrestling today, hunting and fishing alligator, uh, jewelry and food, and then, you know, we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show, Principal Chief, that um, you know the alligator. Um, you know, there are concerns over alligator preservation. And, and I'm just curious now, is the, the tribe involved at all in, in uh, alligator habitats and just making sure that alligators are, are protected and, and that they, they thrive going forward? We have tribal citizens that's involved. We have uh, uh, one guy, his name is Derek Hilliot. He's an amazing guy. Uh, he all about the preservation of the alligator, uh, the eggs and all that. He monitors them. Um, so he, he, I was trying to get him to get on the show, but he had to work. So, but I wanted him to, to talk about that and, and his work that he has done for probably 30 years now regarding that, the you know, controlling the population. The one thing that we've seen just recently, you know, when the alligators was almost the farmers came in and started raising the alligators. Well, now, you know, they have to release so many into the wild. Well, the prices of the alligator uh, has dropped tremendously. And so people, you know, a lot of folks are not able to make a living off of just alligator hunting uh, for the year. And, And, I mean, a whole month, that would that would be good money for, for our tribes, well, for people, the hunters. And with the influx of people, um, designer, designer bags, they go to the farms instead of getting it in a while because you could get the certain size you want. They're not, you know, they don't have holes in them from the fights of the natural alligator, you know, that occurs. So they have, you know, there's a lot of issues. And one of the things that I did notice, I mean, I know we're talking about all different things, but one thing I did, I have noticed in the last few years is that alligators are adapting to salt water, which is, that's something that I have never seen before until just recently. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now that's a whole subject of climate change that, and, uh, but for alligators and so, yeah. But alligators are very special to our tribe. It sounds like, Principal Chief. And and what are some of the risks facing alligators? I mean, are they subject to to poachers? Or is climate change in in your part of the country having any impact on their population? Or any other risks? Well, right now, there's a lot of alligators. I mean, you know, uh, because they're not being hunted any longer like it used to be because of the price. So right now the population is, you know, the it's it's overpopulated really the alligator at this point. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it, that's you know that's not my that's not my thing. That that's Derek Billiot. <laughs> he, uh-huh. I, w- I really wish you'd have been on the show. But, oh no, uh, no he worries. Def- yeah, he could definitely would have answered that that right there better than I can. Well, let me let me ask RJ because I'm I'm just curious, RJ. I mean, uh, is there ever is there a problem with poachers or anything like that uh, with alligators that you've experienced? 
Yes, uh, I mean it's 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 like that with almost everything. They always got some guy that wants to do or some person uh, out there that sees your line or whatever, or, or just you know you know what gets me is uh, you got this huge alligator between twelve, thirteen feet long, and he's just sunning himself, and they were just riding a boat, and they're gonna say look, they say look at alligator man, look you know, and so they think. Well, this is what they do. They, they shoot the alligator, and then they think that, well, now they're an alligator hunter. But what gets to me, they shoot this this big gator, and they just leave them there and rot. Or if they see it on your line, and they see it moving around, and they see it's a big gator, they'll go and shoot it and cut it off your line and, and take it. So, yeah, we have a – we have you know, it's not bad. Because you gotta, you gotta, you gotta address that right away. That you're not gonna put up with that when you, when you're fishing alligators. And so yeah, um, there's there's stuff going on like that. And and before I uh, I shut up with that, I want to just tell you, it's right when springtime starts for the mating season. So I want <laughs> to just let make sure that woman heard it's it's right after winter time. They're just like uh, bears. They'll when, once they come out their hole. They they want food and the rut starts, so it's it's right after wintertime, and uh, okay. so yeah, so yeah, so you 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 are, you're always gonna have that. I don't care if you're fishing crab, you're fishing whatever you're doing. Um, they always got somebody that wants that has sticky fingers or they want to do something silly, and uh, yeah, so we do have that. Okay. Well, Jen, I know you're listening online. You heard what RJ said right at the beginning of spring. That's when you need to be extra, extra careful. Well, folks, uh, we have reached the end of our hour, so I'd like to thank our guest today for what's been a really lively and insightful conversation about the legacy of alligators among southeastern tribes. Join us again next week. We start off with a look at native representation and artificial intelligence. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Looking for opportunities to expand, improve, and share your artistic talents? The Crazy Horse Memorial has programs for indigenous artists, culture bearers, and educators of North America, including funding, an artist residency, a speaker series, performance opportunities, and more. The Crazy Horse Memorial Foundation mission is to protect and preserve the cultures, traditions, and living heritages of North American Indians. Application deadline is January 31st at crazyhorsememorial.org who support this show. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.